Sharai, the podcast co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to a new episode of Sharai, the podcast. My name is Gianluca Parolin. And my name is Serena Tolino. In this episode, we are delighted to have as guest Ido Shahar from the University of Haifa. Welcome, Ido. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Welcome also from my side, Ido. So our uh, first question is, um, we would like to know something about your hobbies or what do you do in your free time? Something special about you. Well, I don't have uh, any uh, eccentric hobbies, I, I'm, I'm afraid. Uh, I do play chess, mostly with my son, who is a much better player than I am. Uh, I can tell also that I was born in a kibbutz. Uh, I'm not sure if you noticed um, a communal village that exists in Israel and, you know, has sort of a socialist way of life. There's no, um, no private property, no salaries. Um, everything is shared together. This is how it used to be, not any longer, but I also, uh, I don't live in a kibbutz any longer, but still, this is my background. So speaking of your background, then, is, um, is your previous work a way of playing chess in a way with social anthropology and social history? Is that how you see it? Uh, I'm not sure if it, it, it's related to playing chess, but indeed, I'm, I, I kind of combine different methodologies, both ethnographic methodologies of participant observation and interviewing and um, historical methodologies of um, uh, working in archives. Uh, reading mostly Sharia courts records. So this is um, my uh, specialization in a way. Judges interest you a lot, uh, don't they? Right? Especially I'm thinking of your uh, Veldes Islam article of 2019. Yeah, well, I, I have many friends in the, because I've been um, watching and studying and, and doing research in, in the Israeli Sharia courts mostly for many years now. And I have some very good um, and close friends in, in this system. And generally speaking, I'm, I'm fascinated by the manner they adjudicate cases. And I very much like their, um, their judicial agency, their ability to maneuver um, between different interpretations and different, also different normative orders. I'm also uh, a fan of legal pluralism. That's my um, theoretical framework that I usually use when studying Sharia. So yes, I like judges. I like uh, <laughs> uh, studying them. And um, Ido, I think um, you are mostly known for your research on Palestinian and, um, and Israel, but uh, you also have another uh, focus of research, which is uh, medieval Egypt, and that is maybe less known. So could you maybe tell us something more about that? Well, this is actually the, the fruit of a joint research with Professor uh, Yosef Rappaport from the University of London, Queen Mary, University of London. I was actually his postdoctoral um, assistant for a couple of years. So we, we translated, actually I translated, I was sitting in, in the library in, in the Oriental Institute in Oxford. And for two years, I was translating this uh, medieval text called Arich al-Fayyum, the Abu Uthman al-Nabulsi. And the result is this uh, translation and edited volume Uh, and Yossi also published another, another monograph. Um, he's a medieval scholar, uh, a, me a medievalist, I mean. <laughs> a medieval. <laughs> um, We love the, uh, the specification. 
Yeah. Yeah. So so uh, this is um, what you must have seen. I mean, this this volume. With the paper you will be presenting in London, you are, however, taking us back to the judiciary and especially at their agency over the interpretation of a very specific clause of the Ottoman law family rights over the past century. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so this is actually quite an ambitious paper because it does try to review the uh, different interpretation of this single clause uh, of the Ottoman family law uh, throughout 100 years in Palestine under British mandate and under Israeli rule. And the interesting thing is that this law still applies in Israeli Sharia court. It hasn't been changed or reformed by the legislator. So this is the, in terms of, of material law, this is the law that applies. So, and still there are huge differences in the manner in which it was applied throughout these 100, 100 years. So I actually used implementation or the application of this article as a case study to illustrate what I call the, the interpretive viability of codified Sharia. And, and I must explain, uh, it relates to, to a very fundamental debate among scholars of, of, of Sharia law, which relates to um, how should we view the process of codification of Sharia law? So there is one, one uh, camp among, among the scholars, or one, one school, I'd say, that view this codification as something completely alien to Sharia, to the extent that some of them, they would argue that codified Sharia is no longer Sharia law. Something else. It may, may define itself as codified Sharia law, but this is no longer Sharia. So, for example, what, what they would say is that pre-modern Sharia was an open-ended jurist law. The ruler or the state was not involved in, in developing it or in, in uh, reforming it. There was no um, single authority that decided how it should be applied. It was like a bottom-up process of applying and interpreting the law, and it was very open-ended. So this is the, I'd say, the um, traditional Sharia. On the other hand, uh, how do they, how does this camp see modernized Sharia or codificated uh, Sharia? So they see it as uh, it's no longer jurist law. It was codified by the state or promulgated by, by the state. Even if jurists were involved in drafting it, it was promulgated by the sultan or, or by, by a parliament. So it's, it's a statute. It's no longer open-ended jurist law, and it is very formulaic and very uh, well-defined, and, and it's close, and also it delimits the, um, the levels of freedom of jurists or qadis in implementing the Sharia. So there is a rupture in, in this camp of scholars' view. There is a rupture between pre-modern Sharia and modernized, codified Sharia. On the other hand, there is another camp that I can um, denote as the continuation camp. And, and these scholars, they would argue generally that even before modern time, before the modern era, there were certain features or certain elements of the uh, traditional Sharia that very much resemble what we see in, in modern times. So, for example, I'll mention one name. 
um, uh, there is a very an excellent article by Muhammad Fadi about the Muhtasar, the Maliki um, um, treaties. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's it's a certain it's a it's a new genre that was the developed in, in the, the yeah, sort of. So what what they did in the Muhtasar what is that they took the accepted views among Maliki scholars in different, uh, it was like, a, uh, it's not a formal codification, but it works in the same manner. It reduces the, uh, specifically for Maliki Qadis, they were obliged to employ the Rai al-Mashur, the accepted view of the Maliki um, jurist with regard to every um, aspect of the law. So Muhammad Fadel will argue that um, even though there's a difference between the modern codification and the um, uh, medieval Muhtasar, they serve for the same purpose and there's a lot of similarity between them. And there are other scholars as well that also try to identify these features of unification, of formalization, of, uh, you know, the limiting the um, uh, jurisdictional authority of the Qadis even in pre-modern times, what hasn't been done was to uh, try and see if codified Sharia in modern time has retained, to some extent, these interpretive viability features. To what extent does it allow the Qadis officiating or presiding in, in, in modern courts, for example, in Palestine or Israel, to, um, to maneuver to um, um, propose new interpretations, new procedures, and achieve new results of the same article of the codified law. So this is what I do in this paper. I follow closely the application of this one single article uh, throughout 100 years, and uh, I try to show that it has indeed changed its application, has changed considerably throughout these 100 years, and it shows that um, interpretive viability hasn't been lost. The Qadis haven't been robbed of their judicial agency, even under codified Sharia. Uh, and in this sense, again, I subscribe to the view that there's no rupture between pre-modern and modern uh, Sharia law. And actually, there's a lot of con continuity. And Ido, you mentioned, of course, we know that probably you still didn't write the paper because there are still um, several um, weeks to the conference. But you mentioned that there are a big difference between the British mandate and then um, the application of the article in, uh, in Israel. So maybe as a teaser for your paper, could you mention some, some of these differences? Yeah, well, the thing is, uh, you know that the, uh, the Ottoman family law of 1917 was never applied in Palestine under uh, Ottoman rule. Because it was, it was promulgated at the very demise, at the eve of demise of, of the Ottoman Empire, and there was not enough time. Actually, in December 2017, the British occupied Jerusalem, and it was promulgated on September 1917. So it, it hasn't been um, in place or applied in Palestine, and it remained to the British to implement it. And what they did, because there was no longer Ottoman legislator, so again, it remained for the Qadis to decide how to apply it. And apparently, and this is something amazing, they decided that because it, this article in particular draws on the Maliki school, most of the, um, of the articles of the Ottoman family law, and of course the, the Mejele 
German civil law, they are drawing on, on the Hanafi school. But Article 130 draws on the Maliki school uh, in what they call Tachayur, or even Talfik, that's the, the um, eclectic expedient. They took it from, from the uh, Maliki jurisprudence and, and included it in, in, in the codified law. And the judges in Mandate Palestine decided that they're not willing to implement it. So actually, and again, it's amazing, as far as I know, this is, I can't, uh, I can't say that I was able to, um, you know, go over all the um, court records from Mandate Palestine. Uh, I did quite a lot of work, but I cannot stand absolutely behind this argument. But I can say, as far as I know, and other scholars as well, I'll try to check it, the article was simply not implemented. They refused to implement it because it, it uh, diverts from, from the Hanafi uh, jurisprudence. And then under Israeli rule, the first files that I found that uh, implemented are from the 1960s. And what they did, I'm not sure if you know the, uh, the details of this article, but what it says, that if, if the Qadi is convinced but there is a um, discord and strife, Nizau Shikak, between the husband and the wife. He may nominate two arbiters, one representing the um, family of the wife, the other representing the family of the husband, and they should try to uh, reconciliate the couple. If they cannot do it, they can recommend separation, that is, judicial divorce. This is why this article can be used by women seeking a divorce because there's no need for the husband to, to agree. It's actually the caddy that, that, that desolates the, the, uh, the marriage. But anyway, so what they did in, in the first decades, they would nominate three arbiters, one representing the wife, another representing the husband, and one representing the court, usually the court secretary, that would determine if there's disagreement between the, the, the other two arbiters, the third one will, will decide what to do. It also goes back to um, who should carry the blame. This is very consequential because if the wife is fined, uh, blamed at the, you know, the, the, um, the collapse of the marriage, then she, is, um, she doesn't get her, her um, financial um, compensation or the, the late muajjal or the um, alimonies and so on, not alimonies, maintenance, and so on. So anyway, this is what they did in the, uh, the first decades, and then in the 1990s, they stopped nominating three arbiters. They only nominate two, and usually they are professional arbiters. They no longer represent the husband or the wife. They represent the court, and they do it, um, some of them, you know, dozens of cases uh, every month or so. That was a procedural transformation. There are also many uh, material transformation in the manner they, they um, implement. Thank you, Ido. We are very much looking forward to hearing the full paper at the 10th uh, ISIS conference in London then. I'm looking forward to. It's been a pleasure and, and thank you very much. Thank you for being with us and see you in London. My pleasure. Yeah, hopefully. See you in London. Thank you.